friends, it's a joy to sing the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ together with you. I do trust that your hearts are elevated. I trust that our minds are focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And I do trust that we are prepared and ready now to come to both the reading and to the teaching of his word. Seem to be a bit of reverb here. <laughs> I'm going to open us in a word of prayer as we now come to the teaching of God's word. And then uh, we are going to um, be looking at the book of Acts chapter 13. Uh, it's a return after a long period uh, to a series, How Churches Grow. How Churches Grow. Uh, last year, November, I think we got up to about the eighth um, uh, section in the series. There's about 10 to go or so. And we find ourselves in Acts chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. We're going to work through it verse by verse. So I'm not going to read it before we start to study it. But I am going to pray before we come to God's word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, all men are like grass, and their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Oh yes, Lord. This morning, our desire is to stand on your word. It is without error, and it is sufficient for all matters of life and of godliness. Would you teach us this morning, Lord God? Would you renew our minds and stir our hearts and transform our lives toward the image of your dear son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior? We ask that you would do this in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, and to the glory of our Father that is in heaven. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How do churches grow biblically? How does the gospel spread? Acts tells us how the gospel triumphs, how God's word conquers souls even to the present day, how God's word conquers souls despite opposition. One of the ways that God grows his church is as we reach out to the whosoever. In Acts chapter 13, we're going to continue the series, How Churches Grow, by looking at the very first mission-sending church. This mission-sending church, the church in Antioch, is a diverse church. Read with me Acts chapter 13, verse 1 in your own Bibles. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, Antioch was a cosmopolitan city with a 
diverse population, a, a melting pot of different ethnicities, beliefs, and cultures. Take a look at Antioch's leaders in this verse. Notice how they look like Antioch's pews. A mixed bag of fruit. Barnabas, the Levite from Cyprus. Simeon, called Niger, meaning black or dark, is presumably an African convert. Lucius, from the African city of Cyrene. Menaean, uh, an aristocrat, and Saul, a Pharisee convert, diverse leadership for a diverse church. Note that the church at Antioch is spirit-filled. You can read that in the second verse. Read along with me. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The verbs for worshiping and fasting are present participles, indicating that this was their habitual practice, a daily worshiping, a daily fasting, and a daily listening to the Holy Spirit for this church. These were not part-time Saints. No, these believers were all in, all week, all the time, all in believers. Note that the church in Antioch is responsive. Read along with me in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. When the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, they set aside Barnabas and Saul. They do not say, but that is our senior pastor. <laughs> they do not ask, but who's going to preach next week? They set aside their very best and send them off because that's what vibrant, spirit-filled, exciting, dynamic city on a hill whose light cannot be hid churches do. We listen to the Holy Spirit and respond to the Holy Spirit. God's people care more about God's glory than their own comfort. There's a bit of conflict in this text. We read about it from verse 4 to verse 7. Uh, look with me in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pathos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. In my experience, so much mission work is about opportunity and opposition. The proconsul of Cyprus, a very important man, wants to hear the word of God. The most important man on the island wants to listen to the most crucial message in the world. But 
Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name in verse 8, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The proconsul's advisor is a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar is an Aramaic word which means son of. A Hebrew calling himself a person's son is identifying himself with that person. Lemaeus claimed to be a follower of Jesus, but taught opposite of what Jesus taught. Like Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and others, the prosperity gospel preachers, Bar-Jesus claimed the name of Jesus, but denied the message of Jesus. In verse nine, but Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Paul called him out right there. <laughs> this was no polite public debate. He struck at the very heart of the issue. You claim to speak on behalf of Jesus the Christ, but you are not a faithful herald. You, came, you claim to be for Jesus, but you are antichrist. Pick up at the end of verse 11. Immediately, a mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. The Holy Spirit accompanies Paul's strong accusation with a strong affirmation, a miracle. A dark cloud falls upon Bar Jesus and he cannot see. A cloud lifts from the proconsul's eyes and he sees Jesus for the first time. Amid the opportunity comes opposition, but God glorifies himself and the lost come to faith. You pick up then in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Pergia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Missions work is not easy. One wonders why John left them. John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. He tagged along as a missionary intern he now turns back, and we're not told exactly why, but we know that it was a great disappointment to Saul and an embarrassment to John himself because he goes back to his mother's house in Jerusalem rather than to Antioch where they were sent from. In verse 14 we read, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, 
the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul and his companions are Jews. So they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. This evolves into Paul's pattern. As he, as he travels, he kicks off his evangelistic campaigns in the local synagogue. Why? Because Jews knew the scriptures. They needed the gospel because Gentile proselytes attended synagogue too, and Paul wanted to reach them because visiting preachers were often afforded the opportunity to preach at Jewish synagogues. And this synagogue was no different. Verse 16. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Paul knows his audience. He's not speaking to a multi-ethnic church here on a Sunday in Pretoria. Paul is speaking to a synagogue of Jews on the Sabbath, and so he tailors his sermon to them. He, he addresses the Jews with formality as men of Israel, and the Gentiles with courtesy as those who fear God. We pick up then in verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Uh, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Uh, Paul, yeah, is appealing to the Jewish knowledge of Scripture, how God used Moses to save his people by bringing them out of Egypt, and how God had used Joshua to save his people by bringing them into the promised land, and how God had used the judges to save his people and delivered them time after time, and how God had raised up King David. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you suppose I am? I am not he. No, but behold. After me, one is coming whose sandals, of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul's intent is not to deliver a history lesson. He wants these Jews who know the scriptures to see the Savior to whom all scripture points, Jesus Christ. Paul wants his audience to see their need for Jesus. 
And so he ends the first section of his sermon by saying in verse 23, God has brought Israel as Savior Jesus as he promised. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God's promises in Genesis that a Savior would bruise the serpent's head. God's promises to Abraham that a Savior would bless all the nations on earth. God's promise to David that he would have a throne that would last forever and ever. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Now, Paul knows how to preach to Jews, but would he preach the gospel? The same gospel message that Jesus commanded his disciples to preach, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Luke chapter 24, verse 46 to 47. Listen to Paul's gospel sermon, verse 26 and 7. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Paul says that Despite the Jewish knowledge of the scripture, when Jesus came, they missed him. Even though he was right in front of them, they failed to see him. And though they found in him no guilt, verse 28, worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, Paul preaches. Instead of celebrating him, the Jews killed him and buried him, and he would have been forgotten, except for this. God raised Jesus from the dead. Amen? Thank you, Tim, and others. <laughs> Verse 30 and following. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring to you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us as their children by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken about it in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Christ died, Christ rose. Now we come to the crescendo. The universal call resounds. Let it be known to you, verse 38, 
Therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Can you see how Paul's gospel message is the same as Jesus's, the same as Peter's, Christ died, Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. In this sermon, Paul places emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, more so than the death of Jesus as a substitute for our sin. Because the Jews knew that Jesus had died, knew that Pilate had crucified him. They, they did not need convincing that he, that, he, that he died. They needed convincing that he lived. Paul says that God raised Jesus from the dead. He says many people can testify to that resurrection. He quotes scripture to that effect. He makes it clear that Jesus will never experience corruption. He points out that the law of Moses is enough to condemn sinful men. Yet in Christ, there is no condemnation. We are free. Friends, the forgiveness of sins is on offer to you today. Whosoever believes will be free. Turn from your love of sin, your love for this world, your love for yourself. Cast yourself upon the promised savior of the human race. Paul says it like this in verse 40. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul ends with a quote from Habakkuk, the prophet, warning Judah that judgment was coming. If God judged Judah, he will also judge those who refuse and reject his offer of forgiveness. You are in danger. If you reject this offer and turn away, you will face destruction alone. Now is the day of salvation. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Turn to him and live. Well, how did the audience respond to Paul's gospel proclamation? Verse 42, the initial response. As they went out, people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let me let you into a secret. How do pastors evaluate their own preaching? It is not by what people say to us at the door as they leave. It is by what they do all week long. I preached sermons on adultery only to be commended at the door for a good sermon by an adulterer. 
sermons on joyfulness only to be commended at the door by some of the grumpiest people in the world. (laughs) It is not commendation that pastors desire to hear. It is lives transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the other. We desire to see that. And so you notice Paul and Barnabas urging the Jews and Gentiles who are following him home that they ought to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving themselves. So much missionary work in my experience is about opportunity and opposition. The opportunity is that the next Sabbath in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The bases were loaded and Paul was about to preach. But the opposition is that when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The Jews saw the the righteous response to the good news and they acted with unrighteous jealousy. It does seem strange that those who should have rejoiced to see Scripture fulfilled are so glum. They should have remembered the words of David, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The words of Zechariah, many nations shall rejoice and join themselves to the Lord in in that day and shall be my people. The words of Malachi, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. Verse after verse in the Old Testament, God promises that one day salvation will come to the Gentiles. That's people just like us. Instead of rejoicing, the Jews reject Jesus as their Savior. Here's the climax of the whole chapter. If you've got a red pen, now's the time to underline a verse. Verse 46 and 7. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Acts 13 is a hinge chapter. Before Acts 13, evangelistic efforts focused on the Jews. This chapter sets the stage for the gospel message to spread out to Gentile lands, to the whosoever. This begins the fulfillment of Peter's words on the day of Pentecost, for this promise is for you and for your children and for those, all those who are far off, the whosoever whom the Lord calls to himself. Friends, you are the whosoever. Gathered here today, we are a company predominantly, almost exclusively of Gentiles, many tribes and nations and languages and peoples. The the whosoever who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The whosoever believes in him and will not be put to shame. You are the whosoever. The right response to this salvation message, even now as you dwell upon your own is joy 
We read about that in the first half of verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Those who are saved rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friend, have you fallen into sin and your joy has been diminished? Then repent even now and cry out with David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold within me a willing spirit. I'd like you who are believers to dwell for a moment upon the salvation of others, your whosoever, your circle of family and friends who you love dearly, a mother, a granny, a child, an old friend, your circle of family and friends who do not yet know Jesus. Revelation 20 talks of final judgment, and there's a warning at the end of the passage. Whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into a lake of fire. Judgment is coming, and your loved one is in danger. Terrible, terrifying danger. Does not love compel you to take the good news of the gospel to them? Does not love drive you to speak life where there is only presently death? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Surely you desire then to come and rest. But you think of yourself, you think to yourself, my uncle is an alcoholic, he will not come. My child's sin has become too great, they will not come. My friend is an atheist, surely they will not come. I am powerless to draw them in and robbed of hope that they might be saved. Take courage in these words, friends. The end of verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is a sovereign act. God himself appoints the whosoever to eternal life. And none are out of his reach. For his will is resolute and his hand is strong. You can confidently share your faith knowing that men and women will be saved because salvation is a work of God and our God is mighty to save. Last verse and the whole point of the sermon. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is the eighth week of thinking through how churches grow biblically. How the gospel spread in the book of Acts, how God's word continues to conquer souls despite opposition. Acts is about how the gospel triumphs. And churches grow as they reach out to the whosoever. This has implications on the kind of church we desire to become. Central will not be a white church or a black church. We will be a whosoever will church. 
and our whosoever is likely to be a diverse group from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And so we will celebrate our unity in diversity because it comes from the Lord, amen? Churches grow as we reach out to the whosoever. This has implications on how we evangelize. We will not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. We will confidently share our faith in our city, trusting the Lord to bring in the faithful. Churches grow as we reach out to the whosoever. This has implications on our future aspirations as a community. God conquers souls. And so we are not satisfied with a shrinking congregation. Our vision for the future is a filled sanctuary, uh, yeah, at the large, uh, at, the, at the hill and enlarged sanctuary and filled Sunday school faculties. Churches grow as we reach out to the whosoever. This has implications for how we pray. God saves the lost. And he uses the prayers of his saints in that process. So speak to Isaac and join the midweek prayer meeting, Thursdays on Zoom at 6 a.m., or the Sunday morning prayer meetings before the service. Churches grow as we reach out to the whosoever. May we be a church that grows as we reach out to the whosoever will. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Well, Father God, I'm very grateful for your word. It is faithful and it is true. And it is sufficient, Lord, for all matters of life and doctrine. Upon it, we can build our life, stake our testimony. In it, the glorious truth of Jesus Christ is revealed. A wonderful Savior. A mighty God who is able to save. This morning, Lord, I do pray for those who have not yet cast themselves upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not yet repented for the forgiveness of their sins. And I ask, even like the proconsul on the island of Crete, would you open their eyes that they might see Jesus Christ and live? Lord, for your church, even as we read your word, might we be edified and built up in the most holy faith. Might we be a church which reaches out in our city for the whosoever will that you might receive much praise and glory through your people. These things I pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, amen.